Welcome to this podcast series on evidence in women's health brought to you by the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine and the Postgraduate Programme in Evidence-Based Healthcare. My name is Dr Anne-Marie Boylan and I'm a senior researcher and lecturer in the programme and together with Associate Professor Jamie Hartman-Boyce and Professor Carl Hennigan we will be interviewing relevant experts, discussing the strengths and limitations of different sources of evidence as they relate to women's health and considering their implications for future research. I'm Jamie Hartman-Boyce, I'm Director of the Evidence-Based Healthcare DPhil Programme and an Associate Professor at the Department of Primary Care Health Sciences in Oxford. Hi, I'm Carl Hennigan. I am Director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine, an urgent care GP and in the University of Oxford I'm Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine and that's a lot of titles with evidence in it. In this, our first podcast, we're returning to January 2022 when a Canadian study hit the headlines here in the UK. It claimed that women were 32% more likely to die if operated on by a male surgeon. Needless to say, headlines like these are worrying, particularly for the women it seems they affect. The study in question was conducted by Christopher Wallace and colleagues who sought to examine the link between surgeon-patient sex discordance and post-operative outcomes. It was a population-based retrospective cohort study using existing data of elective or emergency procedures in Ontario from 2007 to 2019. The exposures were surgeon-patient sex concordance or discordance and the main outcomes and measures were adverse post-operative outcome defined as death, readmission or complication within 30 days after surgery. Secondary outcomes looked at each of these individually. Data for over 1.3 million patients and nearly 3,000 surgeons were included in this study. It found that 14.9% of patients had one or more adverse post-operative outcome, but that worse outcomes were seen for female patients operated on by male surgeons, but not for males operated on by female surgeons. So what does this all mean for women? Are we really at a 32% increased risk when we undergo surgery? And do these findings from Canada have any relevance to the UK? I met with Jamie and Carl to discuss what all this means. My first question is, what is a population-based retrospective cohort study? Well, it's interesting. I've been involved in a population-based study. I actually did my DPhil in the Oxford Vascular Study. And population-based means it was done in a defined population. And this was done in actually in nine general practices across Oxford and Oxfordshire, population of about 90,000. So you can have a denominator. And then from that, you can calculate things like the risk of stroke or the number of strokes with the numerator. And that's helpful in a population-based study, but it generally is observational. You're just observing what happens. And one interesting thing you said about this is it's retrospective. So you're looking back in time, which introduces all sorts of biases compared to perspective when you start and go forward in time. So why does that introduce bias? Well, just think about it. It's something simple like, for instance, we're going to ask you about your smoking status. And I go back in time and I go, what did you smoke five years ago? Well, you might forget. You might look in the databases and say, let's look if it was recorded and there were problems then. You might be missing data. So with a prospective study, you start out by saying, let's record your smoking status. And probably the most famous one of them is Richard Dole's study about British doctors and smoking. And then you say, let's record it and go forward in time. And they went forward in 50 years. Well, imagine 50 years in time saying, did you smoke 50 years ago? Let's look in your medical records to see if it was recorded. So there are huge problems with missing data and the way people report information when you ask them about the past compared to now and going forward in time. 
And Jamie's work is all about smoking, so you know well about the smoking doctor study, don't you, Jamie? I do indeed. And it's one of those things where let's say you had lung cancer and then you were asked if you smoked 50 years ago, you might be more likely to remember that indeed you did smoke 50 years ago. So that's where bias can creep in too. It's not just that you're missing data, but that some people are more likely to report having smoked, for example, because of suffering something that they perceive to be smoking related. Plus as well, simple things like with the, the doctor's study, they were actually able to ascertain the exact number of cigarettes that you smoked yeah. on a yearly basis. And so what they could do is create a dose-response relationship. The more you smoke, the more likely you were to have lung cancer. And they could quantify that quite clearly because you did it prospectively. You can't do this thing going back in time because of the problems of the missing data and the reporting problems. Does the sheer number of people included in this study get over these factors in any way? So there's a really interesting issue which I often talk about is this concept of accuracy versus precision. And it's a bit like you're throwing darts on a dartboard. And what we mean by precision is they basically are the darts are very close together, but they may not be accurate. So they're not near the bullseye. Whereas accurate information is around the bullseye, but they're not close together. And so these huge big data studies provide lots of precision around the estimate, but you often have to worry about is it accurate information about the truth? And you should always have that level of critical thinking and uh, thought of scepticism when you see the size of the study. And importantly, the bigger the study, the less verification of particularly the exposures and the outcomes that's occurred, and that introduces bias. This is about breadth over depth, perhaps. So they collected particular things, but not necessarily a lot of intricate information. I would say they haven't even collected anything, have they? That's the problem with big data these days, is you just go to the database and you start fishing and having experiments. doesn't mean it's not important, because often what I consider these are hypothesis driving. We think there's some exposure, we think there's some outcome, and here's a signal. But often what's happening in the modern world, the way they're being reported, they're being reported as though they're causative, and we found the truth. And there may be many factors underlying this issue that might explain why this is occurring in this data set. Emily McFadden is a senior statistical epidemiologist who leads a module on big data epidemiology on the Masters in Evidence-Based Healthcare. She told us about confounding factors that could affect this study's conclusions. So if the distribution of these additional factors or confounding factors differs between the groups that you're comparing, then that might distort the association that you observe between the exposure and the outcome. And so the effects can either mask an association or create one where it might not truly exist. There are a number of techniques that observational studies use to try to minimise confounding, and it might happen at the design stage, so how a study is put together, or it might happen later in how the data was analysed. And this study used a statistical method called adjustment to try and minimise the effects of these possible other confounding factors. It's important to remember that this data wasn't collected for research. This data was comprised of a number of linked data sets, and each of these was collected for different purposes. So some of the databases were collected for clinical treatments, but they also used demographic records and professional information from the surgeons, as well as an insurance database. While they were able to adjust for the potential confounding factors, they were only able to do so using the data that was collected. And it's likely that there was some residual confounding by both known and unknown factors that wasn't accounted for.
So one of the factors that seems particularly relevant was the complexity of the surgery. And the authors gauged this by using procedure type. And so if we look at the raw data, we can see that there are differences in the types of surgery that the male and female surgeons performed. The male surgeons seem to perform a higher proportion of neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery. Female surgeons performed more general surgery and plastic surgery. And it seems likely that there may be some difference here that's important. And so while the authors acknowledge that they've adjusted for this measure of complexity, it's possible that the male surgeons were performing more complex and high-risk surgery. And it seems a pretty big limitation of the study that that's the only way they could measure complexity. But it seems something that seems worth exploring further if the data can be found elsewhere. You know, it's very hard to argue with Emily's explanation. It's a really good explanation. But like much of statistics and epidemiology, there's lots of words in there that you have to translate, don't you? Residual association, confounding. And I guess this is the problem with the way the language is construed, that you have to start to put your own meaning on some of these terms. So, Jamie, in a really kind of lay-friendly way, <laughs> what does confounding factors mean? Yeah, so let's give an example from smoking because we've already started out with smoking, as it were. So even that wonderful British doctor's study, there was a lot of, especially tobacco industry commentary that, oh, that it's just an observational study. It's not actually that smoking causes cancer. It's not actually that smoking causes heart disease. It's that it's something about people who smoke that make them more likely to both smoke and to suffer a heart attack. And if that was the case, that would mean there was a confounder. So yes, people who smoked were more likely to have heart attacks, but it's not because of the smoking. It's because something else that links those two. And in that case, the argument was stress. Stressed out people smoke and stressed out people have heart attacks. So it's not the fault of the cigarettes. It's the underlying stress. And what Emily's talking about here, and indeed what the authors talk about in the paper, is that there could be some things that link your chance of a bad outcome after surgery and the likelihood that as a woman, you'd be operated on by a man, that doesn't necessarily mean that being operated on by a man is what is causing your increased risk of those worse outcomes. And complexity is one of the things that they talk about. And it's interesting, Emily says, well, it would be great if they could go back and measure that better in the data set. But as far as I understand it, actually measuring the complexity of a surgery is an art rather than a science, possibly. So there's lots of things that go into it about the patient's underlying state of health, about whatever procedure has to be done and the intricacies of that procedure. That would actually be incredibly hard to measure as it were. So getting to the bottom of what's happening in the study, even if you had great data on complexity, might still actually be really tricky. So when you're doing a research study that has lots of these confounding factors in it, what do you do as a researcher to try and mitigate against them? best example I always think about is areas like vitamins and supplements because in observational studies they always look like they give rise to incredible health benefits they reduce your risk of heart attack and risk of stroke but in those studies what happens is the people who tend to take vitamins and supplements tend to live healthier lifestyles they weigh less they exercise more and they do all the things that actually would lead to a reduction in heart attack so what you try and do is start to look at some of those factors and try and adjust for them. So, for instance, you may look at socioeconomic status. People are wealthier, have healthier lifestyle, take supplements. So you can either match them two groups or you can try and adjust for them in your analysis. Now, what Emily was saying, though, even though you do that, you still end up with this concept of residual confounding. There may be something else you just haven't collected the information for and you can't adjust for. That's why, ultimately, 
To test these interventions, we use randomization, which try to balance out the confounders in two equal groups, and therefore the only difference should be the exposure or the intervention. However, in certain situations, it's not possible to randomise people. For instance, you can't randomise people to smoking because it's unethical, because you can't randomise them to something that's harmful. So there are situations where the only evidence you're going to get is observational study, and that's why you should do it in a really robust way with a prospective study going forward in time and collecting the measures that you want to account for as you go forward. I'm going to go back to a chap called Doug Altman, who was a famous statistician and unfortunately died, but he wrote a paper which going back 25 years ago, an editorial in the BMJ, which said we need less research but better research. And at the moment, we've got hundreds of thousands of observational studies published each year. We're overwhelmed with information and they keep coming. And actually, they're having no impact on practice. They're just leading to confusion in the population. Emily was also concerned about the media's focus on the secondary outcome of death. The headlines seem to have focused on a secondary outcome of death rather than the primary outcome, which was the combined adverse post-operative effect. And they've also focused on the secondary exposure, which is where they broke down the primary outcome of patient surge and sex discordance into more detailed gender categories. And it wasn't the key headline result of the paper. And if that had been picked up on by the press, it may not have been quite so impressive. The main result from this study is what they call a composite outcome, which means they're combining lots of different bad things that can happen to you after a surgery all into one outcome. And what the authors do is they report that as their primary outcome. They're very clear that that's what they set out to look at. But the most startling result has to do with death in particular, and it has to do with one direction of discordance. So women operated on by men. And that is what unsurprisingly has been picked up on in the headlines. It certainly is something to be very aware of whenever you read a paper. And whenever I read a paper, I'm thinking about, is this what the authors actually set out to test? Is that the headline result we're getting? Or are we getting the thing that looked the most impressive? If the authors are reporting 100 results, but only one of them is interesting, and that's the one that the media is picking up on, then I I think that should give us a little bit of pause for thought. That doesn't mean it's not worth exploring further. So I think that's critical. It doesn't mean it's not worth a conversation. But as Carl said earlier, I suppose one of the things to think about with studies like this is that they're there to generate hypotheses. They're not there to prove anything. And I think if we were saying that this study proved something, then it would be particularly problematic to focus on a secondary outcome that wasn't the main thing they set out to look at. So is the finding that women are 32% more likely to die if operated on by a male surgeon true? It's an accurate representation of the data. It is splicing the data quite a bit. And also, there are many different ways you could express the numbers. And 32% more likely is probably the most alarming way you could make those numbers look. And that's the issue of relative versus absolute risk. Fortunately, death was relatively rare in this population. And so even 32% more likely is actually, when it comes to me, if I was a woman being operated on by a male surgeon, if I looked at the absolute data, I'd be a lot less alarmed than I would be if I saw something that said I was 32% more likely to die. So it's not inaccurate, but I'd say it's been selected as the headline that the most people will read. Can someone explain to us what absolute and relative risk means? Yeah, you're sort of, you're jumping into this world of the media and trying to get you to read the article. And this concept of absolute and relative is at the core of 
evidence-based medicine and reporting, but it's something that the media does all the time. One of the best examples, for instance, you can understand is with the contraceptive pill and your risk of deep vein thrombosis. And when this gets reported, taking the contraceptive pill doubles your risk of getting a deep vein thrombosis. And when that was first reported, it led to a pill scare and people stopped taking the pill. But actually, always when you hear that figure, it's like the 30%, it's a double. It's double of what? And your background risk, if you're a healthy woman or pregnancy-bearing age, is about 15 per 100,000. So you double that to about 30 per 100,000. So the absolute increase in risk is 15 per 100,000 who take the pill. So it's still an important risk, but that feels much less than double your risk. The interesting issue, if you stop taking the pill and get pregnant, you actually quadruple your risk and it goes to about 70 to 80 per 100,000. And that's the important information. So if you put them together, they give you a balanced view of the decision you may take. The problem is the 15 per 100,000 to 30 won't get you to click on the headline. So these relative measures will persist. You just need to be a bit more critical when you think about it's 30% or it's double of what. Sunil Patel is a Canadian surgeon doing his DPhil in evidence-based healthcare. Here he talks about the confounding factors and contextual information that he thinks are important when thinking about Wallace's study. I certainly think there's confounding based on the lack of details regarding the care. One thing I did think that was interesting was there really wasn't a lot of difference seen in emergency surgery, and it seemed to really be seen in elective or planned surgery, where I think there's a lot of interaction that leads up to someone coming into an elective surgery, from the discussion with the surgeon, the agreeing to go forward or not with the surgery, involving other healthcare professionals. I think one of the things that the authors specifically state is that they did not assess other physicians or healthcare workers that were involved in the care. For instance, the anesthesiologist of the day could have been a female or a male. We don't know. We have a number of large academic centers that perform a large proportion of these surgeries, and we have a significant number of female, male trainees involved in their care that may or may not have been doing most or all of the procedure. So there is some details there that I think are not explored because they're not available and likely are providing some confounding to the study results. I guess what's important when you listen and why we have to do this work is because people will come in and women may come in and be particularly concerned about, oh, I'm about to be treated by a male. Well, actually, what it's looking like is that it's the old problem of it's apples and pears, that it depends on the type of surgery you're having, where your risk factors are already, all the care around it will impact on your outcomes. And this single isolated factor is one issue, but it's only one small issue in the whole pipeline that might affect your care and outcomes. Yeah, one of the things Sunil said, which was interesting as well about the pathway, is that you'd often have your pre-op assessment, you'd meet with your surgeon beforehand, and they might even decide whether or not you go forward with the surgery. And you can imagine all of those different things might be feeding into it as well that we just don't see here. And I think that's why it was interesting that I made that point about it not showing up in the emergency surgery. But I think one of the things that struck me when I was reflecting on the study is, yes, we don't know what is driving this. But when we talk about the most likely causes of potential confounding, it's that male surgeons were more likely to operate on the more complex patients. And that doesn't mean there's not a big inequality playing into this. It just might be a slightly different inequality about the makeup of the medical workforce, which also bears some attention. So I don't think we can dismiss this on the basis of confounding, but really think about all the different ways in which inequalities are playing out in the healthcare system. 
I mean, I qualified in 2000, so that's 22 years ago. And in that 22 years, the makeup of the workforce has changed drastically in that time. So if you look at those that are coming through now are at the end of the career and the experienced and probably taking on these, there are probably more males than females in that position. Will that be the case in the next 10 or 20 years? No, because we've got a much more flatter equal in terms of female males coming into the profession. Um, you still may see these quirks so in certain specialities where surgery, the certain way of thinking or the lifestyle is not particularly facilitative to certain family life and so forth, that you might see these imbalances. But I think it is radically different now to what it was when I first entered 20 years ago. And I think that's a really good thing. And that might explain some of what's happening here, which you hope will disappear in the future. So that's why it's worth keeping looking at to see, does this maintain or does it actually disappear over time, this effect? Sharon Dixon, who we'll hear from shortly, talked about the BMA, so the British Medical Association survey, which showed that 91% of women doctors have experienced sexism in the form of patronising comments, being overlooked for career progression and being ignored by patients or colleagues in favour of male staff. So there seems to be a big issue in the medical profession about how women experience their jobs and how women are treated. This issue about equality is not just affecting to doctors, it's also the representation of women in clinical trials. In some areas of medicine, like in heart attack research, stroke research, where women are considerably underrepresented. And that's quite an interesting issue that in some ways might not be fixed because some of the treatments we use, we're not looking and researching them anymore. And it's interesting, when I did my D-film, is actually women on average had their heart attacks about 10 years later than males. But actually, they go into later life, they had much more events because there was more of them alive. Yeah. But actually, they tended to get under-treated and under-recognised as you get older. And so it's not just being female, it's also the age issue that comes with treatments. That interaction is quite important as well. Sharon Dixon is a GP and academic who's researching women's health. I spoke to her about the impact of gender bias in healthcare. If you look at other health issues, and I think heart disease has been quite well studied here, you know, the British Heart Foundation finds strikingly different outcomes for men and women in the experience of heart attacks. Women presenting later to doctors, they're less likely to be treated or recognised initially as having a heart attack. But also even once they've had a heart attack, they're less likely to have the recommended treatment or, or prescriptions. There's a study done on a large database in the United States which also shows this gender discordance in terms of outcomes. So where women with heart attacks between 1991 and 2010, Greenwood showed that women had higher mortality when they were treated by men, but men and women had equal mortality when they were treated by women. And fascinatingly, that study showed that the effects could be mitigated either by gaining experience of treating more women or working in teams where there were women. There's the question of representation. I mean, one of the things that strikes you in this paper is that there are just more male surgeons doing more operations. And we know that about 46% of UK registered doctors are female, but only 13% of surgical consultants. But it is really important to recognise that that's a big step up from 3% in 1990. But I think there's still a gap between the trainees and becoming a consultant. I can't really speak for hospital populations given I'm a general practitioner I'd like to think in general practice land and particularly where I work in urgent care it's just a different landscape and it's a different environment primary care so I think in terms of what just mentioned there in hospitals there are obviously issues to think about and look at that are important in terms of creating equality in the workforce but my other point was I've seen this 
what I call the, the evidence to implementation gap occur consistently in medicine is that you have evidence of something that works, for instance, treatments in heart attacks, and they're just not implemented to the level where you'll maximise the gains. There's always a shortfall. And somehow what happens is people are looking at a brand new treatment or some new innovative technology and not going, actually, we've got an issue here. Why are women not being treated appropriately when they have an acute coronary event? And that's the evidence to implementation gap that actually should be closed. The problem is we seem to have made it very difficult to do the research in these areas because it's become very costly, difficult to do, and it doesn't come from the ground up. It tends to come from the top down and therefore doesn't match what actually would work on the ground. And so I think there's something about how do we get this evidence to implementation gap closed. And I think an area of research that seems to be very big across the board is particularly in terms of what happens for women, making sure they get appropriate treatments that actually do lead to the gains that they should get based on what the evidence is at hand. As a woman with a vested interest in this sort of thing, I take some hope from the fact that things are improving, but also I think it is a call to continue doing research in this area and to think really about all the places in the pipeline, as Carl talked about there, the evidence to implementation part being one, where women are being underrepresented in the way that we collect evidence. And that includes from drugs not being tested on them because of fears about pregnancy, all the way through to what evidence-based treatments are actually given to them in healthcare. There has been a lot of areas we've worked with, particularly patient groups where there's been harm done to women. We worked on a drug called Primidos and hormone pregnancy test, but then there was the surgical transvaginal mesh was also a big issue and the sodium valproate issue in pregnancy. There's a lot of exposures and interventions that have created significant harms over time. There was also a systematic review by Fitzgerald and Hurst that showed that healthcare professionals display the same level of implicit bias as the general population. So should we be expecting that our healthcare professionals are immune from gender bias in some way? I think where I started going back in the 90s, there was some sort of reflection that somehow doctors were superhuman beings and had some status that was different to everybody else. And being one myself, it couldn't be any further from the truth, to be honest. <laughs> you know, we have problems, we have families, we have all the issues that everybody else faces. And I think what you have to work hard to do and what I try to do, every time I have an encounter in medicine, I often try to just treat it as though that person is like my mother in front of me. It's hard to do that. You've got to be really neutral, thoughtful and think in that moment I'm your advocate. I'm going to do the best for you as though it was my mum. Often though, life stresses, all of the issues that face us mean we can let ourselves down sometimes and you have to spend a long time reflecting on yourself. And as I got older, it's got a bit easier to understand how to do that well. But I think if you introduce bias in how you treat people or judge people and you can do that really easily, you can't give them the best treatment and you certainly can't give them the best available treatment based on what should be done there and then. That's why I like the evidence-based approach though is because, you know, in this situation, this is the best evidence evidence I can share with you to inform the decision. What I wouldn't do is take observational research and say I'm going to share this but often we do do that and that's part of the problem because we want to somehow intervene to make things better for people when the evidence isn't clear. As you're younger and you're coming into the world and you're learning and you're becoming more experienced, you can feel very anxious as a doctor and you think, gosh, everybody needs to go into hospital and there's real problems and actually tend to over-refer, over-test and over-treat. And as you become more experienced, that wider perspective allows you to be more balanced about the decisions and particularly how you communicate with people. You know, it's a bit like having children. 
makes you, I feel, a better doctor when people present with their children, younger children. You can understand the issues they face. Before, I was looking in a textbook going, this is what I'm supposed to say right now. And actually, the reality on the ground is radically different when somebody's coming in with a brand new baby and they're six or eight weeks old and I'm thinking, yeah, I understand. You're totally lost. You're stressed. You're anxious. There's no manual. There's no book. And you think your baby's about to die. And I can understand what that feels like. And I think that's the bit where we can share our stories to help people as you gain that experience. So you go on that right path, particularly to be able to be, the word is empathetic with people. So you can take on board what their concerns and fears are. You can't necessarily do anything about them, but you can understand where they're coming from. And that's where I think the wider experience in many areas makes it a much better workforce. What do we think of the main learning points from this paper? One was some of the challenges around particularly retrospective cohort studies. So just observing what happens based on data that's already been collected and how it's really sometimes hard to uncover the truth or causes from that. And the other, of course, is just that point about absolute versus relative risks and wanting to have both in mind when we think about what it actually means on the ground. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think being critical, don't believe everything you read in the news. Think about just simple things, even asking simple questions like what type of study was it? And it's a relative effect. It's of what? What's just the baseline risk here? What was it? And he said the deaths were really low. And then the more generic conversation we've had about the complexity of work and the workforce and exposures and this idea that actually maybe most of the benefits we can gain are from thinking about how we implement evidence to those particular groups that have been disadvantaged, whether that's by gender, ethnicity. There are lots of issues where we could improve how we did healthcare if we made a more balanced approach to what we do next, as opposed to thinking about some brand new innovative treatment. Let's close the evidence to implementation gap. So to conclude, it's not untrue to say that women are 32% more likely to die after being operated on by a male surgeon, but stating it in this way exaggerates the original finding. It seems this much more headline-grabbing figure has been reported in the media without a thorough explanation of what it means. We're again reminded that it's important to approach all sources, both in the media and academic sources, with a critical eye. That's not because they're always inaccurate, but each method and each study has their own intricacies that warrant critique. Everyone we spoke to thought Wallace's study was well conducted, but it's ultimately limited by its retrospective design. Nonetheless, it has contributed to a growing body of literature that indicates the gender gap in health. As ever, we need more and better research to understand why women seem to face adverse outcomes just by virtue of being female. Thanks to Jamie and Carl for discussing this with me and also to Sharon, Sunil and Emily for sharing their expertise. And thank you for listening. For more information about our research, teaching and postgraduate courses, please visit www.cbm.ox.ac.uk. Please subscribe to iTunes and stay tuned for our next episode.